You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm so excited to get started in this book. Uh, but first, y'all, there's been a question that I've been curious about all week. Why did you come to church today? Why are you here and why am I here? Or you could kind of look at it from the other side. So why do you not come on the days that you don't come? You know, I think uh, maybe a way to think about it is, okay, let's pretend an alien dropped down from outer space. So after you were done freaking out, this guy, he's never been to church. He doesn't know anything about a church. He has no idea what a church is. And he just asks you, hey, what's a church for? I mean, why do you go and what are you supposed to do? How, how would you answer our new alien friend? You know, I think most of our, our reflex, our gut reaction is to answer in terms of something that it does for me. And so it gives me some kind of spiritual experience or it helps me in my struggle with sin or my kids like it and, and, and they have friends and have a good experience there. But you know, I, if we only answer that question, and this is what 1 Corinthians is going to be all about, if we only answer that question in terms of something it does for me or, or something that I get out of it, y'all, we are missing something crucial. There is something way bigger going on around here. So like I said, we're starting 1 Corinthians today. And listen, buckle up, okay? Put your seat and tray tables in the upright position. It is going to be a wild ride. We're going to talk about issues of gender and sexuality. We're going to talk about head coverings. We're going to talk about kicking people out of the church. I might need some examples, you know, for some illustrations later. Maybe you. But y'all, here, here's what we see. All of those things, all of those other hot topics and debated issues, listen, y'all, those are symptoms. That's not the disease. Those are, to put in a billion analogy, those are walls and windows, not the foundation that's underneath. 1 Corinthians, you know what it's really about? 1 Corinthians is really about identity. Who are you? And who are we collectively? That's what it's about. We need to know a little bit about what's going on, the city, the occasion, because uh, there's a lot going on there. And so we actually know more about the Corinthian church than just about any other New Testament church. Uh, we know that because Paul spent a lot of time there. So you can read about the founding of the church in Acts chapter 18. Uh, just at its founding, Paul spent 18 months there, but he made multiple visits. We think he made three visits. He may have made more that we don't know about. He wrote at least four letters to the Corinthian church. Plus, we know there were countless, we don't know how many, uh, personal reports that people would bring back and forth to Paul uh, as he was in Ephesus and in, in other places. And so you may think, hey, why is Paul spending so much time writing so many letters to this church? And my initial thought would be, well, it's because they're like his favorite child. I mean, he just loves them so much. He can't get enough of them. He wants to write to them and spend time with them and hear from them as often as he can. Uh, negative. That's not what's going on here. And so he's writing and visiting so much because, y'all, it is a church at war. It is at war with itself. It's at war with Paul. 
He has to write so many letters because he's taught them things and wrote to them, and they're ignoring him. They're saying no. They're rejecting his advice. They're rejecting his teaching, and they're really rejecting the gospel. And so he just has to keep persisting in teaching them. To understand the book, we've got to understand the city. So uh, the city of Corinth. Think Las Vegas, okay? New, booming, extravagant, new money city is what's going on here. We have a map to kind of show you where it's located because its location uh, is important. It was a very strategic location. So it essentially controlled trade from any direction, north, south, east, and west, because of where it was located on the southern end of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So it's in an isthmus. An isthmus is just a little strip of land. And so where you see that Corinth, that dot, that dot pretty much takes the whole strip of land in between the seas there. And that Cape Malia at the south there, so ships really didn't want to sail all the way around the south of this peninsula. It was too treacherous. They would have shipwrecks. So actually what they would do was they would sail up into one of those gulfs, either from the north or the south. They would unload the ship and transport the cargo just across that little strip of land and load it to a new ship. Or y'all, often they would drag the ship across land into the other gulf. And so you see, if you wanted to get trade into Greece, no matter which direction you were coming from, you had to go through Corinth. So they had lots of money. That meant there was lots of upward mobility. In fact, the marketplace in Corinth was bigger than the marketplace even in Rome. It was the home of the Roman Super Bowl. So we think that time in the world, we think about the Olympic Games, and those were going on. But, y'all, a bigger deal was the Isthmian Games. And those were in Corinth. They had them every two years. It lasted for several days. People from all over the empire would come. They would compete in athletics, but also in drama, in music, in oratory. Y'all, it was the spectacle of the Roman world, known for both its extravagance and its immorality. Let's talk about the culture a little bit. So the culture of Corinth, and y'all just stop me if any of this is sounding familiar to our culture. It was obsessed with status and money. The commentator David Garland says, to use terms from American culture, schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, and driving rivals' names through the mud, all describe what was required to attain success in this society. So it was the type of culture where you didn't just have money, you displayed your wealth. They, they were obsessed with all this kind of like patronage, uh, honor. And so if you had money, man, you got your names on buildings, you donated to the causes so you could get credit for it. You wanted everyone to know, hey, it was this guy's wealth and generosity that, that made this public service happen. Your uh, reputation, your esteem, or in our terms, your likes were everything. The worst thing that could happen to you in that culture was you got canceled and all the important people started looking down their noses at you. You didn't have the right friends. They had a very high value for charisma and public speaking. And so, listen, if you could impress and wow and woo a crowd, you were powerful and you were the envy of the whole city. So you could talk about almost like a Corinthian dream. That was the ideal, to live the Corinthian dream, to advance up the social ladder, constantly gaining more likes, more wealth, and a better seat at the next table. 
That's how you lived in Corinth. Of course, probably no surprise, it was famous for its immorality. And so this city housed lots of different temples to lots of different gods, but the biggest was the temple to Aphrodite, the fertility goddess. And I bet you only need one guess on how you worship a fertility goddess. At one point, they estimate on any given day, there were a thousand temple slave prostitutes at this temple to Aphrodite. Y'all, the city was so immoral, they invented a word to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize just meant to be immoral, okay? They just named the whole concept of immorality after that culture. That's how immoral they were. One commentator, I think, summed up the Corinthian culture very well. He said the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. And y'all, all of it, every bit of it, found its way into the church. We know from this book there's a cult of personality causing divisions in the church. Sexual immorality is tolerated in the church. Corporate worship is chaos, mainly because the elite are trying to prove how elite they are. Spiritual gifts are being used for personal promotion. In fact, Paul even tell, he's going to tell them at one point, you guys are doing things that are not even tolerated among the pagans. Charles Spurgeon sums it up this way. The Corinthians were what we should call nowadays, judging by the usual standard, a first-class church. They had many who understood much of the learning of the Greeks. They were men of classic taste and men of good understanding, men of profound knowledge. And yet, in spiritual health, that church was one of the worst in all Greece and perhaps in the world. Amongst the whole of them, you would not find another church sunk so low as this one. Now, if you're Paul, and you're getting ready to write a letter to this church, how would you start that letter? I mean, imagine, imagine you spend a year and a half laboring with this church, teaching with this church. You've already written them, instructing them. Uh, they, but report after report just comes back of immorality. You've told them, hey, guys, it is not okay for you to sleep with your stepmother. Hey, leaders, it is not for, okay for you to tell that guy it's okay for, for him to sleep with his stepmother. And they just come right back and say, Paul, your, your, your teaching is not very sophisticated, okay? We've really evolved into a higher level of wisdom and lifestyle. So you know what, Paul? And, and you know, we kind of got these other leaders now that are a little more charismatic than you. So you know what, Paul? You're canceled. Listen, thanks for everything so far, but just stay in Ephesus. Leave us alone. How would you reply to them? Listen, men, when what, what we're going to find in the introduction, the beginning of 1 Corinthians will change your life if you will let it. Because how you would reply to them is directly tied to the reason you came to church today. So let's read. Let's read what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll read the first nine verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Y'all, this is shocking to me. I mean, if all we had was the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, and that's all you read, you would think, what an amazing church. This church must be like a city on a hill, a prom shining example for all to follow. But we know different. We know all the things that are going on there. So why isn't Paul just ripping into this wayward church? It's because Paul is talking about who they are, not how they are behaving. And that is two different things. See, their, their core problem was the same as what our core problem often is. You don't know who you are as a church. You don't know why you are here, not just individually, but collectively. And so Paul tells them, listen, God made you who you are, and he's going to remind them how. Here's how you got to be who you are. God called you. He gifted you. He sustained you. And that's our big idea today. The church is the called, gifted, and sustained saints. The church is the called, gifted, and sustained saints. So let's take those one at a time. First, he says we are called. He says actually we're both called. You're called and I'm called. I'm called Paul as an apostle. You're called Corinthians as saints. And we know how this happened with Paul. Paul, he is on his way to persecute Christians. He is on his way to extinguish the church. In no way is he seeking Jesus Christ or doing the right things. But he, he may not have been looking for Jesus, but Jesus came looking for him, didn't he? And appeared to him on that road and called Paul to be his apostle and to serve him and to, to grow the church. Same thing with these Corinthians. They were the most profane sinners. They were hanging out at that temple to Aphrodite. But what happened? God made them saints. This word called, it appears over and over. So as just the word called, it appears three times. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 9. It means to call out. Clint. It means to name. It, it, it means to give someone a name. You know, throughout the book, Paul, he's going to go back to Genesis over and over as he's making his theological arguments. And I think he starts here. I think he's using creation language. So, I 
think he has in mind the very beginning, the beginning of all things. And he's saying, do you want to know how you got to be who you are? Do you want to know how you got your name? In the same way that God looked at the earth that was formless and void and said, let there be light. And so there was light. And he called the day, day. Just like that. He looked into your heart and said, let there be light. And he named you saint. And so you are. He's trying to tell us who we are is a divine appointment. I didn't decide it. I didn't make it up. I didn't earn it with my past. I cannot earn it with my future. Jesus named us. But then he says we're called together as saints. And this is the hardest part for the Corinthian church. It's the most problematic. So all the disagreements, all the issues we're going to find, they really have their root in factions, divisions, people separating into their own tribes with their own leaders. But Paul says in verse 9, he says, no, no, you are a fellowship. You know what that word fellowship means? It means shareholder. So I don't individually possess the whole thing. I'm not sole proprietor of Clint and Jesus Incorporated, okay? No, 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 no. I'm a shareholder. He has spread his gifts and his grace throughout all of his saints and all of his people. And until I'm just a shareholder in something much bigger than myself. And he says, and not just you, not just you in Corinth, every believer everywhere. Paul mentions us. He includes us. Oh, I hope, I hope today that you know God has given us an identity that is so much bigger than even, not just my individual life, but even just my current time and my current place. It is a global, eternal identity to be a saint. That Greek word, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, it's the same root word for called. And so it means to be summoned out of one thing and into another. It has its roots on, you know, there'd be like a town and, and some kind of town herald would stand in the middle of the town and he would call people out of their homes and into this public gathering and public assembly. That's where the church is. So in our home, we have one of these. So uh, it's not because we have cows, it's because we have children. Okay. Melissa will tell you this is the best $10 she's ever spent in her life. This is our dinner bell. And so when dinner's ready and on the table, we ring this, okay? And from every nook and cranny of our home and property, kids come running from whatever they were doing, playing in the yard, reading. I don't know where they were. I don't know what they I don't really keep up with my kids. But I know if I ring this bell, they will be summoned from one thing into another assembly. And pretty soon, there will, we will all be sitting around the table, sharing a meal together as a family. That's what the church is. God has rang his bell. He has called and assembled us out of whatever our lives were, whatever we were doing, into a fellowship around a table. But y'all, we're not eating meatloaf. We are feasting on the body of Jesus broken for us, the blood, his blood shed for us. We are the called out ones. That's the way the church is formed. That's what the ecclesia is, a people called out from a lost world into a fellowship that belongs to Jesus Christ. He uses the word sanctified over and over again. It's in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9. I don't know what happened in verse 5. 
No, we hear sanctified. Most of us think, okay, spiritual growth, but that's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about what we would call positional sanctification. So it's not growth, but identity. It's who you are from the moment of conversion. And that word, y'all, it simply means set apart for a special purpose. Okay, and so at my house around dinner time, as we are summoned, we usually eat around these red and white plates that we have for every meal. And those are our normal everyday plates, right? But somewhere in my home, in some dark corner of some dark cabinet that you need like a ladder to reach, I don't even know where they are, y'all, there are some special plates, the nicer plates. And those are reserved, those are set aside for a special purpose. When Paul says you have been sanctified, y'all, he's telling the church essentially, get ready to be weird. Because you're not normal. You're not everyday. God has set you aside and called you for a special purpose. You're not the everyday plates. You're the special plates. And y'all, this is so important. Paul's going to return to this over and over and over again. He's going to say, listen, you've been behaving just like the culture around you, but you are different. God has set you aside not to pursue all the same things everyone else is, but to bring glory to God Almighty. That's how you're sanctified. How does he accomplish this? How does he set us aside and call us and sanctify us? Well, he gives us two words, grace and peace. And y'all, this is the whole ball game when it comes to Jesus. This is the summary of all God's work in your life and my life, grace and peace. I don't think I could say it any better than the commentator Gordon Fee said. He says, in a sense, this sums up the whole of Paul's theological outlook. The sum total of all God's activity towards his human creatures is found in one word, grace. God has given himself to them mercifully and bountifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be achieved. Tis mercy all immense and free. And the sum total of all those benefits as they are, are experienced by us, by the, the recipients of God's grace, is found in the word Peace. Peace, meaning well-being, wholeness, welfare. The one flows out of the other, and both together flow from God our Father, and we're made effective in human history through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, because of his grace, you get peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. So think of it this way. The most important question for any of us, for any human being is, who am I? Well, God has answered that. He has called you. He has named you as one of his saints, okay? The second most important question is, what do I do? So if I'm a mom, how do I be a good mom? If I am an employee, an athlete, how do I be a good employee or athlete? If I'm a Democrat or a Republican, how do I be a good Democrat or Republican? And y'all, we bring that type of thinking into our faith. So if I'm a Christian, how do I be a good Christian? What do I need to do? You know what Paul's going to say? He's going to say, God's taking care of that too. Because this is the second thing he's done. He has gifted you. You are gifted. Paul says, God gives us everything that we need. He says, you're enriched. Now the Corinthians loved money, so they, that he would have had their attention with this one. He has made you filthy, stinking rich. He says, you have every gift. There is no gift left ungiven. 
Now, in light of the situation that we describe in the church, you may, you may be tempted to think a lot is lacking. I mean, and maybe God is withholding his blessing, or maybe the Holy Spirit isn't quite as prevalent there, or something else is going on. Paul says, no. No, the problem isn't with a lack of gifts from God. The problem is they have forgotten the giver of the gifts. See, what had, what had taken over in Corinth was a kind of spiritual pride and showmanship. Remember, this is a very showy culture. It's an influencer culture. And so corporate gatherings turned in an opportunity for me to, to show off how spiritual I am. And if you're not quite as spiritual for me, then hey, no worries. You can become one of my followers. And I'll, you can follow me around. I'll teach you what I know. And then maybe one day you can be as spiritual as me. So in communion, we know they were separating the elite from the lower classes. Y'all, baptism was turning into kind of this you know how sometimes two celebrities date each other just to get in the, the papers and, and the news stories? It's just kind of a way to affiliate with important people. That's what they were turning baptism into. So what Paul does here is so, so brilliant. So he, he mentions two categories of gifts. Speech, that word is logos, and knowledge, that word is gnosis. So your speech and your knowledge. He says, God's given you everything. You've been gifted They've, they highly valued both of, both of these gifts in the Corinthian culture. Place an incredible amount of value on them. So in speech, listen, the most powerful, the most prominent people were the great speakers. If you had charisma, if you could stir a crowd, you were, again, the envy of the city. And so political leaders, religious leaders, uh, philosophers, important philosophers of the day, y'all, they were expected to be great in front of a crowd, to have the gift of speech. And so, y'all, look, we're entering the season. Look no further than our own presidential debates. Watch, pay attention to this. After a debate's over and all the talking heads start analyzing what's going on, talking about what's going on, they're not going to talk about the issues. They're not going to talk about, you know, the competing ideas and which is better than this. All the talk about is, well, how did they look? How did they come across? Were they winsome? Were they charismatic? That's, that's primary in our culture. And it was there, too. They valued knowledge. So they valued kind of new, trendy, sophisticated wisdom. Back then, everyone had a guru who could tell you the secret to a better life. And it's part of the reason they're rebelling against Paul. Saying, well, we can, we can found somebody a little more sophisticated, has actually better wisdom than Paul does. And so what, these two categories are becoming sources of division in the church. Even later in this chapter, in chapter 1, he He's going to say, you're more interested, interested in the sophisticated logos word of the world than the logos of the cross. In chapter 8, he's going to say, you know, your gnosis, your, your pursuit of wisdom has become a source of destructive pride. And that's where he says, you know, wisdom puffs up, but love builds up. So what he's saying there is, Listen, God has not been stingy with the gifting. You've been selfish with the using. Paul is redirecting their attention here away from the gifts and back to the giver. He's making sure that they know all of these gifts as much as you love them. You have to remember they are from God. And if it's from him, that means it's also for him. And y'all, this is so important. This is so important for us today because, listen, if you forget where it came from, you will forget what it's for. 
That's true of every single one of us. The nanosecond, y'all around here, we start trying to climb up some, advance up some kind of ladder around here, or, or we start using our gifts for personal attention. That is the moment our greatest strengths will become our greatest weaknesses. It happened there, and it can happen here. And listen, we have amazingly talented people. We have amazingly dedicated people. But what is even more amazing is the God we serve. He has enriched us with gracious gifts, and we use those gifts as instruments of worship, not as sources of pride. So God calls us. He gifts us, and then he sustains us. He will. He will sustain his church. You know what the worst part of finding your identity and your own achievements or your own morality, you know what the worst part of that is? If you achieve it today, you got to keep it up tomorrow. And then the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Listen, if you, if you catch the winning touchdown pass on Friday night, great. We'll cheer for you for a couple hours. But then guess what? Next Friday, you got to do the same thing all over again. Y'all, same for me. I mean, if I get up here and I, I find all of my meaning and all of my value, my whole identity in preaching a great sermon, let's say I happen to do it one Sunday. We haven't seen it yet, but maybe I will. Everybody, all of y'all, everyone gets saved. It's amazing. And man, we go home, we're all on cloud nine. How long do you think it'll be before it hits me? Oh, I, I got to do that again next week. And the next, and the next, and the next. This is the cause of all the virtue signaling in our culture. You know, if my identity is in some cause, then I've got to prove over and over and over again how committed I am, how worthy I am even more committed than them and them, and I just got to keep proving it over and over and over. Listen, no one can sustain that. And there is no hope in that. So that's how the world operates. I would love to share with you the Christian hope. The Christian hope is a certainty that what God started, he will finish. That's our hope. He says, Paul says here, we wait for the revealing of Jesus. And you may say, well, hasn't Jesus already been revealed? Well, yes and no. In part, but God is not done yet. There is more to, to come. And that's why the Christian hope, y'all, the Christian hope is the opposite of the world's hope. The world's hope says, you know, whatever you have now in the world, listen, it is tarnishing, fading, eroding, and one day it will be gone. This is, today, this is the best it's going to get. But what the church is now, y'all will only increase in eternity. Our future is better than our present. That's what God says. He says the church is only the first fruits. This is just the beginning. There's a whole greater harvest coming in the future. And so what the church does, what we're doing here today is we build for a certain greater future while the world, y'all, exhausts itself just trying to maintain what it has today. And I would contend every day, we have the better hope. So Paul says, he will sustain you in verse 8. God will sustain you. And this is great news, y'all. Sustaining the church, it is not in my job description or your job description. That is in God's job description. It is his church. 
And it strikes me this morning, we have way more history than the Corinthians did to know just how true this is. I mean, just think about it. Think about it. Since the the time Paul wrote this letter, think how many people across the globe have tried to persecute the church out of existence. Think how many philosophies have tried to convince people to just completely do away with the whole idea of God. Think about all the wars and the atrocities and the natural disasters that Christians have endured and nothing has been able to distinguish, to extinguish the church. It's like that old, remember those old Energizer Bunny commercials? Church just keeps going and going and going. And that battery in its back, it's not me, it's not you. It's God himself sustaining his church to the end. Paul is essentially saying here, he's saying, wait, Corinthian church, you may be a total dumpster fire right now, but the God who called you has secured your future. And what's even more amazing, what's even more amazing is what you will be in the end, what you will all be after he sustains you. He says, you will arrive guiltless, guiltless. Now, I had a seminary professor that used to like to say, God is in the grammar. Once you can really understand the language and the words, man, it will make you fall on your knees and worship. And I don't know of a verse that that's more true than when Paul says this, when he says we will arrive guiltless. Because guiltless is the same root word for called, for ecclesia. It's that same root word to name and to call out. But here he's using the opposite of it. He says, you won't be called. So he says, when it comes to grace and peace, you will be called out. Your name will be called. You will be named for grace. But when it comes to judgment, your name will not be called. The picture is some great courtroom in the sky and God stands up and asks, who here is guilty of not loving me with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and not loving their brother as themselves? And what follows that accusation is a amazing, grace-filled silence as your name is not called. See, the, the church in Corinth And me and you might be fragmented and full of sin, but God has a plan to make them guiltless. And he has a plan for you too. The certainty and security we have is found in just three words in verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful. You cannot sustain yourself But when you take, listen, men and women, when you take your identity out of your hands and put them in God's hands, you will be sustained till the end, till the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, guiltless. Oh, I hope you notice. Go back and read this this week and notice how Christ-saturated this text is. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus because we call upon the name of our Lord Jesus 
Our grace and peace is given from the God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, given to us in Christ Jesus. Our speech and knowledge are enriched in Jesus. We are confident because of the testimony about Christ Jesus. Our future hope is in the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised to make us guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are absolutely certain of all of this because God is faithful. And finally, he has called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't think you could fit Jesus more in those sentences if you wanted to. It all rests on him. And this is why you come to church. This is why we gather here together. Men and women, it is not to chase experiences. It is not to gather some good advice. It's not because we're supposed to do. It is because it's who we are. It's because it's the name that God himself has given us. God has written our biography for us and called us saints in a fellowship together. And you've probably noticed, you probably know this, Y'all, this concept of identity, this concept of who I am, it is only gaining more and more importance in our culture. And it's because nobody knows who they are. Everyone is asking this question. And it, listen, it's a hot topic right now, especially when it comes to all things gender and sexuality. But y'all, it is so much bigger than just LGBTQ. As a dad, who am I? As a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, am I something more than just a collection of my good and bad deeds? Am I more than my job title, more than my bank account, more than my political affiliation? Am I more than who I share a bed with? Everything else, listen, everything else in the world today is going to tell you, you are nothing more than what you decide and what you can accomplish. That is the limit of your identity and who you are. But I just got to wonder if there's anyone here today who is exhausted from carrying that weight all by themselves. Only Jesus. That's why Paul starts just saturating these verses in Jesus Jesus is the only one who says, your identity is a gift. I decided it, and I earned it for you. I accomplished it by calling you, by gifting you, and by sustaining you till the end. And I created the church for you to live out your identity, for you to experience now, in part, what you will be for all eternity. And so listen, if you're here this morning and your whole life has been earning who you are instead of believing in Jesus, I invite you today to believe. Just believe. Believe in the work of Christ and what he has done for you. And for the rest of us, those who are following Christ, y'all, let's not just go to church. Let's be the church. Let's live out the name that God gave us. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.